For some, grief can be the beginning of a new life. Death is inevitable. It's time we start talking about it. Join me as I speak with all different types of people about what death has meant to them and how it shaped who they are today. Welcome to Shades of Grief, a podcast where we discuss difficult topics like grief and loss. I'm Jeremy, and my mother passed suddenly when I was in my 20s. My hope is that these conversations will help others going through something similar. Before we begin, I want to let my listeners know that this episode was recorded a year ago. Today's guest is someone who I've known for about three years. She is an amazing person. She lives in LA with her husband and their three children. This is Caroline Casper. Hi, Caroline. Hi, Jeremy. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast. I've never done anything like this before, even though I've had a lot of conversations since losing my mother 10 and a half years ago at the age of 23. I'm really looking forward to having this conversation with you. I think it's really important. I think that I certainly learned a lot about what I needed and the people who were a part of my life learned a lot about how to support me. And I hope that this can be helpful for others. Awesome. Thank you, Caroline. When you say that others learned how to support you, do you find that it's still useful today? Do you find that you still need the support to the same extent or or the or the same care that comes along with that support? Today, definitely not to the same extent that I did when my mother first passed away. I'm somebody who is very self-reflective. And as I figured out what was going on for me and what I needed, I was able to put it out there so other people knew and I was able to be communicative about it. What I would say people do know now is what they've learned from my experience. Show up, make the call, reach out, those things, which I'm sure we'll talk more about. But I would say the biggest thing that my friends had learned was you know, saying nothing or avoiding is way more hurtful and way more damaging to somebody who's already feeling pretty isolated. Let's go back to the beginning. Tell me about growing up. Sure. So I'm from New York. I lived there my entire life until I moved to Los Angeles three years ago. I grew up in a suburb of New York. My parents and I lived in a really nice, beautiful home with my three brothers. My family is modern Orthodox. So we always kept Shabbat. We always were kosher. I went to Jewish day school. You know, I, I had a very happy childhood. I feel really grateful for that. I had a lot of friends. School was really hard for me, but I was very supported with tutors or whatever I needed. I felt like I just had a regular family. Uh, when I was in seventh grade, my mother let me know that in a kind of a cryptic way, because I think that it was hard for her to have this conversation. She let me know that she had breast cancer. What I didn't know was that when I was in fourth grade, she was first diagnosed and she had a double mastectomy and she had, and all of this happened while we were in camp in sleepaway camp. And I remember she came up to sleepaway camp. It wasn't visiting day and the owners gave her a really hard time. And she was like, I need to see my kids. I need to see my kids. But we didn't know why. We just thought, oh, our parents are coming to visit us. But it was before her surgery. She was really scared. And then she was in remission and we never knew a thing. And then it it came back. She was going every six months for a checkup. She was fine. She was fine. And between one six-month checkup and the next, it had metastasized. It had spread to her liver. From that point on, you know, she spent the rest of her life battling it. 
So when she told us it was this huge secret, she wanted my brothers and I to have a normal life. And it was normal when we were out of the house. And then when we were in the house, you know, we were very aware a lot of the time that this was something that was going on as much as we were able to comprehend. What was that like in in seventh grade, finding out that your mother had breast cancer and that it spread? So it was pretty hard to process as a seventh grader. I think that it was easier for me to focus on what was physically different, which was that my mother started covering her hair. She started wearing skirts to the community to outsiders, she had just decided to become more religious. As an insider, I knew one, she's covering her hair because she doesn't have any hair. And two, she is becoming more religious as a way of coping with what was going on. For her, it was, you know, I'm going to try and like tap into my connection with God to help me through this. And what was that like for you noticing your family going through something privately at home versus something different in public? I thought of it as my mom protecting us and her taking control where she could. What comes to mind for me that makes me laugh is It was kind of almost like this joke I had with myself when I was with my friends where they would talk about things and I would just, (laughs) I would just say something morbid, like, guys, I'm totally going to be the first one of us to die. And they would be like, what? Like, why do you say things like that? In my head, I was like, my mom has cancer and I'm going to get cancer too. And like, for me, I mean, for people who know me, I like for better or for worse or inappropriately or appropriately just use humor kind of where I can. That was always something that I was kind of laughing about to myself or if my friends were making a joke and it was nowadays everybody would know better than to make a joke like this but if it had to do with cancer I would say to myself like you wouldn't be saying that if you knew so I, that was sort of how I how I dealt with it I never felt burdened by it in a way that I was aware of but in retrospect I must have been yeah that makes sense you mentioned so your mom she died of breast cancer My mom's mother had breast cancer in the late 80s, early 90s, when everything was very different. And it had gone away and it had come back. My mother, I remember, was always so careful to get everything checked every year or however often you're supposed to. Her and her sisters, I think, were very careful. And I think my sisters were probably also. Is it something that you want to encourage younger women to make sure that they get themselves checked regularly if they have something that runs in the family? So. I am very on top of myself when it comes to that. And I've done all the testing that's been recommended. I've I do all the follow-up that's been recommended. I speak to doctors. Um, I'm very much managing my health in that respect. And yeah, I would absolutely say that for anybody who has the family history, they should do it. I have friends who I know are really on top of this, who have who have been taking care of themselves because of their own family history. And we support each other in that. And I think that it's obviously important to manage your health always, but this is very deadly. And I have an extensive family history of it. So absolutely. At least for for me, it might not be the same for you, but my mother died when she was fifty six. Your your mother was also probably relatively young, if not if not younger than that, right? How old was your mom? Yes, so she was fifty seven, and she had her first procedure, her double mastectomy, when she was forty four, and then she was in remission for three years, and then for ten years she had stage four cancer, and then when she passed away, so about ten and a half years ago, I was twenty three at the time, and my youngest brother was only eighteen. It's crazy to lose a parent that young. It's just it's not natural. You have your own family, and you're you're in your thirties. 
do you think, is there something in your mind that's like, my expiration date is X and I need to accomplish all of these things before I reach that, whatever I think my expiration date is. Maybe maybe you don't have, I, I have this a little bit because my mom was 57 and her mom died of breast cancer when my mom was around the same age I was when she when she died. I'm always just like thinking that maybe, maybe that runs in the family. It's really interesting you say that. I, I don't think that way. So my grandmother, my mother's mother passed away at 64 from breast cancer. My mother passed away at 57. Like I said, I'm very on top of managing my health when it comes to that. But also on my father's side of the family, longevity runs in the family. And so I actually don't, I don't think too far down the line, maybe because life's so busy. I think perhaps when I was younger and my mom was sick, I wondered about it. Like I mentioned earlier, or when I was making morbid jokes about being the first one to die in my 30s with my own family, knowing that I'm doing what I need to do to be responsible when it comes to managing my health, I don't worry about it, no. Tell me about your mom. I, I see your face lightens up when, when you talk about her. Oftentimes, people get uncomfortable when when they hear someone who's lost their mom at a younger age. They get a little bit uncomfortable when that person talks about their mom. I first just wanna say, I think you make a really good point. I do think that I worry about if it makes other people uncomfortable sometimes. There's for sure people who I know miss her also and they're always safe to talk to about it just because they want to hear about her the same way if they had something to share i'd want to hear about her i think it it does depend on the person i think that some people are really welcoming of sharing a memory or something that comes to mind thankfully you know i know my husband is so receptive to hearing anything for sure there's other people who do get uncomfortable and we can definitely expand upon that later tell me about your relationship with her So like I said, I have three brothers. I definitely think that that's a huge part as to why my mom and I were so close. Growing up, I had a lot of friends. I never felt like, oh, I don't have a sister. You know, as an adult, sometimes I'm like, oh, that would have been nice. I felt so close to my mother, especially as I got older and was becoming an adult that I never felt like, oh, it's, you know, between my friends and her that it was, I was really missing out. Sisters share clothes. I would share clothes with my mom. I would take things from her room. People would always, if they gave me a compliment, they'd be like, is that your mom's? They, you know, they just knew. And even now I still wear a lot of her stuff. She was a person of growth. And I I like to think of myself as a person of growth as well. You know, when she was faced with tragedy, her way of dealing with it was take on more mitzvot. I don't know if our listeners know what mitzvot are, but, you know, take on more laws from, the Torah from the Bible and try to like strengthen her connection to God. And that should give her like inner strength and hope and faith that she'll be healed. And as I I do wish that as I became an adult, you know, I said I was 23 when she passed away. I really knew more about her because there were things I knew as her as my mother, but I don't know how she would have necessarily, you know, been as a grandparent. She knows she's never going to have the opportunity to meet my children, which is a really painful realization. And just she was somebody I always went to for advice. So being a mom, things come up all the time where you really want sound advice and you go to different people, you get different advice. She was that constant for me. I've always been the advice giver. I'm a social worker. Like I've always been the advice giver amongst my friends. And I never had specific people I would go to for advice besides her while I was growing up. And I also was We had like that mother-daughter relationship where I was overly vulnerable with her, but really not so vulnerable around most other people. There's probably a lot I could say 
about the relationship. In a nutshell, you know, we were very, very close, but I think I also knew to take advantage of my time with her because I knew she was sick. When I was a kid, difficult as a preteen or a teen, there was a lot of bumps in the road and a lot of times where I didn't feel, you know, the relationship is in the best place and I wanted that space. But I do think that I worked through that as I got older and there was just a mutual respect between us. Growing up, your mother died when you were 23. You knew for about 10 years or so that she was sick. That's almost half of your time with her, knowing her while she's going through and battling stage four cancer. That's a lot of pressure to put on a kid. You mentioned that makes you sad that you don't get to have that adult relationship. The mom, I have a question, like my kid's doing this. What did you do? Like, or you just want like someone to say, oh yeah, oh, you just got to let them be. Or, or like, oh, I remember when you used to do that. Oh, you do the biggest thing that, or one of the biggest things that I really missed in the beginning, and you just jogged my memory right now, was that person that was, you're doing great, Caroline. Like, this was amazing, or that was amazing. And not to say that people don't compliment me from time to time. That's a very, you know, human, natural thing. But to have that constant person who's just always giving you positive feedback, negative feedback too, when warranted, of course. I just remember that when my mom was had no clue how to use computers like a lot of maybe our parents' generation until more recently, you know, like really, really did not understand technology. And I was a kid and I wasn't an expert, but I knew things and I would fix like the slightest thing. And she would just be like, you're so smart. As a kid who was really bad at school and really struggled and needed tutors, that meant everything to me. I wasn't getting that feedback from other places. I didn't think I was smart. So even just to hear that I was so smart and, and she meant it because I was able to do this little thing on the computer. That was something I really, really missed. Just a couple other things I wanted to mention. You know, I, her illness was a secret because she wanted us to live a normal life. Nobody would have known. She always looked amazing. She showed up all the time. Our home looks great. Every meal was cooked, like way more than I do now. And thank God I'm not sick. Really just, I, I never felt like I was lacking. Uh, you know, I never felt like she couldn't do this because she was sick or she didn't do that. I really felt like she provided what we needed her to. Your mother sounds like an amazing person. You know, your mom was privately battling it for three years from fourth to seventh grade. Well, at least from us. Uh, fr from you guys, right? Mm -hmm. And then she, your mother shares that with her children and your relationship with her changed mostly overall for the positive because you, you realized maybe there was a finite amount of time I have to spend with this person. What were the things that it, it seems like she was doing everything. And so, so something, I mean, something must have taken a toll. She would get very depressed and very anxious when she had an upcoming scan or if the, the markers went up, I believe it was. She would have to basically just crawl into bed and be upset about it. And I don't even know that probably happened at a bunch of different ages over the years. As much as she wanted to protect us from other people, I also think that she wanted to protect us from all the information. So we would hear things like the markers went up or the results were good. I personally don't recall getting many details. I think that we probably also wanted to protect ourselves subconsciously. We didn't know we were protecting ourselves from, but if I had to analyze my younger self, it was just easier not to know. It's too heavy for children. Yes, uh, it definitely can be. What, what were the months maybe leading up? Could you describe what they were like so that people can understand what someone might be going through? Sure. So I have to think back a little bit. My mom died about a few weeks after I graduated college. My friends actually had to move me out while I was sitting Shiva. My friends, my mom's friends, they got a truck. They packed me up. They brought everything back to my parents' house. My mom showed up to, she showed up to my graduation. She was bones. 
She at that point had already been avoiding people. She had gone through a bunch of radiation and her stomach was very bloated from it. And she was wearing huge clothes and she was a tiny person to begin with. She passed away in June. So the months leading up to it were were horrible. It was the beginning of the end, as my brother once said. What he said in the days leading up to her passing away was that we can't heal. We're, we're, you know, like we're in limbo. We know it's coming and you can't start to heal at this point. So it's just, you're just sick over it. I remember every night going to sleep, not knowing what, what I'd wake up to. And we had hospice in our home at a certain point. My mom knew that this was happening and she knew that nothing was going to be working for her anymore. And she had to kind of find her own way to make peace with it. And she said goodbye to everybody. She had conversations with a lot of the people that she cared about. And I remember ours and it was really the most heart-wrenching conversation of my life. Yeah, I mean, I also though was 23 and graduating college and supposed to go traveling with my friends and my friends didn't know what was going on. So that was a complicated piece too. I think just speaks to the fact that you really don't know what goes on for people and that it's hard to be patient with people who are maybe having a hard day or or doing the wrong thing or saying a mean thing. But really and truly, people just didn't know. You just graduated from college or you're in the process of graduating. Your mother still shows up to the graduation and then three weeks later, your mom dies and your friends don't know why you have been avoiding them or not seeing them or not talking to them as much. So I don't think I was necessarily avoiding my friends as much as avoiding talking to them about it. Like I had a friend who came over and my mom was in the pool and she saw that my mom had a portal. Her father had, had been sick and had had cancer. And I don't think she, I think she knew better than to ask me about it. But, you know, she brought it up to me at Shiva. But also my mom, I don't know if it was my my aunt or my, or if it was my mom at that point, somebody was still, or my mom's friends maybe were like still encouraging me to go do normal things. So I even remember like this must've been a week and a half before she died, maybe that my friends were all going to the zoo and they were like, Oh, you should come. And I remember I drove there and my brother was in Israel for the year and he called me and I said, you should come home. And it was so, so hard for me to tell him that. It was this moment of, this isn't going to be like this much longer. She's not going to be here much longer. And he broke down on the phone because I think that him hearing me say that was like a, it really set in for him, you know, you're in Israel all year, you can really keep it at bay. So you hear, okay, maybe she's not doing well, but we've heard that before. Like I said, we'd only ever see her function as a normal mom and to the outside world, she was a normal mom. So hearing that was really scary. And he did, he came home early. To me, it's still, it's hard for me to process the not sharing and that your mom managed to keep it at bay at home so that her kids can have a seemingly normal life, at least outside of the house. Because I mean, your life inside the house wasn't super normal, but it was your normal. It wasn't typically normal. I would say certain things that come to mind that just weren't normal were if a friend wanted to pop over, I had to make sure my mom wasn't walking around without something covering her hair or that, you know, she knew somebody was coming because what if she somehow looked a certain way and it would like give this secret away. So there was definitely some anxiety around that. There were definitely people also at Chiva who were like, you know, I, I thought or I knew or whatever it was, but for the most part, people were shocked. So you mentioned that you were really great at being vulnerable with your mom. It was really hard for you to open up to other people. Was that always or was that more, did you notice that after like in seventh grade when your mom told you about what what she was going through? I think I realized it over the course of the 10 years as I just got to know myself a little bit better. It almost started, it almost came to light in one of these ways where my mom was like, you're always like crying and complaining to me about silly things. 
And that's not how I seemed to other people. So were you home when your mom died? Was your whole family home? Tell me like what that whole experience was like for you. I, I personally didn't get to, I wouldn't say didn't get, I, my, I was in New York. My mom was in LA. I got a call and I got on a plane. Well, first of all, thank you for sharing that. I know I'm sharing so much and you're thanking me for sharing, but I also appreciate you sharing as well. Yes. So it was Arab Shaduis. My brothers and I all came to, we were all in the house for Shavuos. I remember that one of my brothers was rushing from the train station because he didn't know if she would even make it to Shavuos. And that was highly emotional. The night of Shavuos, again, for any listener who doesn't know what Shavuos is, it's the Jewish holiday where we celebrate receiving our Torah. My mother was a a very religious woman in in her own way. My sister-in-law, we brought up her candelabra to her bedroom. Usually she would light it downstairs. And my sister-in-law, I don't know if it was I lit it or my sister-in-law lit it. One of us lit it in the room and we did everything in the room. And then my sister-in-law, I remember, was sitting next to her bedside and she said to her, my mom, I don't think even think was, I don't know what she was able to comprehend at this point. You know, like she had someone there from hospice and like, you know, we would kind of just like surround her in her room. And my uncle was there like saying to him around the clock and her best friend was there just like however she could help. And my sister-in-law, I remember, took out a book and my mom's always trying to read these Jewish books, I think to give her strength as well. And she said, Esther, it's Shavuos. We should learn something. And my sister-in-law read from her book that she was reading to her, which was like such a touching moment to see that, you know, my sister-in-law was able to to think in that moment that that would be really meaningful for her. Two days after Shavuos, it was Shabbos. She passed away Shabbos morning. And I remember the rabbi came over. Yeah, that was, that was how it happened. Thank you for sharing that. Tell me, what was it like? It was Shabbos morning, your mother died. What were the next couple of days? Do you guys buried right away? And then did you sit Shiva? Tell me how, how all that worked out. Yeah, so I remember that people came to the house. A few men came to the house to take turns watching the body. Uh, so they, because it was Shabbos, you couldn't remove the body. So they sat in her room. And, you know, one of those people I still know. And I'm so grateful and appreciative. The next day was the funeral. So that night after Shabbat ended, I wrote my speech at the funeral. I spoke, my three brothers spoke, my mom's sister spoke. Actually, my mom's sister wrote a speech. She couldn't bring herself to speak, so her daughter did. And then from there, it was the burial. A lot of my, my friends were so good, a lot of them. They they came, you know, everybody helped bury the body. And then Shiva began that night. So I went home. I remember I was sitting. Yeah, I remember like what room I was sitting in. And like my friends were surrounding me and like everyone was tired. I was tired, but I knew I was supported. You know, throughout that week, I knew I was supported. I knew what to expect for that week. I was nervous for Shiva to end. Did you know what to expect? Because it was the same thing for seven days. Oh, you're saying once it started. Yes. You, like, you woke up and you're like, okay, this is not good. Correct. Yeah. Correct. But you, you knew what to expect ahead of No, not really. I think that I wasn't so worried about Shiva necessarily. It's draining as you might have felt for yourself. And I was very tired, but you know that everyone who's there is coming with good intentions and they care about you. And some people are provided like a nice distraction and some people give you a a good outlet to express yourself. And definitely 
certain times were more emotional than others, but overall I was just like very, I was blown away by the amounts of people that came to see me and to see my family. In a way, Shiva was, for me, it was also like very comforting, very safe, very therapeutic, almost like I became more appreciative of, of the religion because of it. Like who was smart enough to like institute when someone dies that for seven days, people just only care about you and only want to make sure that you're doing okay. And it's almost, if you, I mean, if you're fortunate enough to be a part of a wonderful community and a large community that, that, that really cares about its its members, it's in a way overwhelming in a more positive than negative way for sure, but so much harder to then go back to real life once it's over because there's such a stark difference between that. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I agree with you. I was very anxious for Shiva to end and for real life to resume because school was over. I didn't have a job. My family was going back to work. I didn't want to be left alone with my thoughts. Part of me had wondered if my mom continued to be sick, that I was going to just spend my summer with her, trying to help her, but she, this happened at the beginning of the summer. And so that was hard for me. And Shloshim, the 30 days following Shiva, was really hard for me. Towards the end of those 30 days, I ended up going with my friends on a trip that I was hopeful enough to want to go on when I didn't know what was going to be with my mom. And we actually traveled to Europe for five weeks. It was really an incredible experience overall. It was beautiful and I'd never done anything like that before. With that said, it was an emotional roller coaster for me. My friends were very good through it all and I give them so much credit. As an aside, going through that at a young age, honestly, kudos to your friends. Yeah. To be willing to at 22 or 23 years old to be like, oh, I don't want to go to Europe with like some, like even yeah. though they're my best friend, but like they just lost their mom, like it's going to be, they're going to yeah. be such a downer. That's how kids think. Yeah. And so really, honestly, it's great for them that they were able yeah. to do that for, for themselves and for you. And I just remember that when we got to France, that was, uh, Paris was a bit triggering for me because it was a place that I remember my mom had gone to visit and she really loved and she had talked about it. At that point in the trip, I was with three other friends. Like I said earlier, I wasn't good at being vulnerable around other people. So I would go into the bathroom at like 3 a.m. and I would just write my thoughts on my phone and I would just sob and just cry and I just didn't want anybody to be a part of that. That was that was part of my healing, but also very painful at the same time. You're talking on what might be a podcast. Are you, um, you're certainly more, are able to be more vulnerable now. So like, what, what helped you open up to your friends? I think it's easier to be more vulnerable when I'm talking about what's happened versus in the moment. So for example, I'm fighting back tears as we as we talk because it's still hard for me to be vulnerable in the moment. And I also saw a therapist for many years and through all of this, it was really hard for me to cry in front of her. I would I would fight it every single time. Like my throat would get like sore because like it just needed to release and I would just fight it. I did not, I didn't want to cry in front of anybody. I'm really not a big crier and maybe that's part of it too. Maybe because you were not allowed to share your secret in public, maybe you felt even in a cry it what's supposed to be a safe space you couldn't cry because that was sharing your secret in a way i'm not sure uh, that might be too far anything's possible if that's what was going on for me i, I wasn't aware of it but it, it's interesting because as much as i cared around the secret i was open about other things but again it wasn't it was i didn't feel vulnerable sharing those things they were just 
things that happened and how I dealt with it or how I felt about it at the time, not what I was experiencing in the moment. So you said you saw a therapist throughout the whole thing and then also um, for years after, which is great. I, I see a therapist once a week and I have, you know, consistently for the last couple of years and I find it really helpful. You went to therapy or you sought out the, the help of a therapist, you know, while you were younger. What was that like? Did your parents encourage it? Did they say you need to or or did, did you want to do it? How did it make you feel? So my mom had brought it up to me a few times for different reasons. But the main reason was I, when I was in college, I had I, not necessarily a formal diagnosis, but I'm in the field and what what I believe con- constitutes binge eating disorder. One time I stuffed my face so much that I felt so sick and I couldn't go to class the next day. And that's when my mom put her foot down. She's like, you need to go see a therapist. So I started going to therapy and it was about a year before I had this breakthrough, which was that I was self-sabotaging my weight, what I was eating, my because that way I could be so fixated and so upset about my appearance, that's where I could put my energy rather than being upset over what I couldn't ultimately control, which was my mom being sick. I had that breakthrough in therapy. And yes, this is a plug for therapy because I'm a therapist, everyone. All right, relax. I never binge ate again. That is impressive that you came to that conclusion and that you were able to control it or take control back. You went to therapy you had this breakthrough. Do you find that you're in a good place now that you feel comfortable with who you are? I think that it's always a work in in progress for me to improve my self-esteem. I I think that in recent years I've worked really really hard and I, I haven't I haven't met with a therapist since I've been married, but I've worked very hard. I've read self-help books. I've kind of sought out my own mentors in certain, in certain areas. And I really believe it's important self-esteem building, especially in the work I do. Now I work at a school with children. I teach social emotional learning and in order to teach it, like I, you know, I don't really think that it's something you can fake. I think that that would, that's been a huge, uh, ongoing, not huge, but an ongoing process. And right now I think I'm in one of the best places that that I've ever been, which I'm really, really grateful for. I'd love to get a list of those books that you said helped. So was there a turning point? And let's talk about how you got there and, and what was like what what it was like afterwards. So I'd like to start with that first year after, or I would call it within the first year. And that was by far the hardest year. And there were so many painful moments. I come back from the trip and I was about to start graduate school and I moved to the Upper West Side. I had wonderful roommates who are still my friends. They found the place. They, you know, took care of everything and I just showed up. Then I started school at the end of August and originally they had wanted to give me a placement at Bellevue Hospital and everybody was like, you have to take it. You have to take it. That's amazing. This is like one of the top internships. And I didn't feel it. I said, you know, I, I, I don't think I want to be in that setting. I said, I'd rather be in a school setting. And they said, well, do you have a preference? Like younger kids, older kids. And I think my preference was younger kids. And they ended up putting me with high schoolers. And I ended up interning in the South Bronx at what's called an alternative transfer high school. So 
what a tr- what an alternative transfer high school is, which I didn't know until I was there, is basically kids that students, you know, even as late as in their 20s, early 20s, who could not complete high school for whatever reason, got kicked out, got pregnant and couldn't continue, whatever it might be. This school is essentially a second chance at completing high school. And it's structured differently. And I was one of three interns there and I was there three days a week and I was doing some classes with them. And I was really there to provide sessions for these kids that, that needed it. And it was without a doubt essential to my healing journey because what was a turning point for me was realizing that these children who maybe lived with their families, maybe didn't, maybe had a home, maybe didn't, who knows what was going on for them, what kinds of traumas they'd been through. They would come to school, they'd show up, they'd build relationships with their peers, romantic friendships. They'd laugh, they'd smile and they were resilient. And I was witnessing it every single time. And I knew some of the details of the traumas that these kids were going through because I was their therapist and still they lived lives. And it helped me realize if they can be resilient, so can I. I had a supervisor who was also just super supportive and he helped me create a bereavement group for the students. These kids would come in and they'd talk about their loss and we were able to all share that together. And it it was just essential to me uh, working through my own loss and connecting with them over it. And um, I remember something that my supervisor said to me, he had lost his brother and he, I think, brought this up in the bereavement group that he really never dealt with it. And that 21 years later, something triggered him and he broke down and he had this moment of realization that he never accepted his brother's death. And until you can accept your loss, you're not going to cope and you're not going to heal. I think that's really important for people to know and understand. Just to, you know, talk more about that first year. There, you know, there were definitely a lot of turning points, so to speak. Some that I have really strong memories of and really impacted me. I'll share. While I was at the internship, that community was really outside my day-to-day life because it's not my community. It's not the community I go home to when I leave work. It was amazing and it was helpful, but then I had to return to my life where a lot of the time I didn't feel like I wanted to be there. And I was keeping the laws of of, of Avelute. So uh, what that means is for that year, I didn't go to movies, I didn't go to parties, you know, things like that. Nothing really celebratory. And being that it was my first year living on the Upper West Side, that was isolating at times. But again, I, I, my friends were pretty good at, at being supportive. When I finished Shiva, I got an email from someone who I wasn't close to at the time, but I had known from high school and college. She had lost her father a few years before that, maybe maybe seven years or so before that. Her email was really heartfelt and meaningful to me. And um, we started this dialogue between us. And every single time I was really, really struggling. And I didn't want to talk to some of my closest friends because I felt like they just won't get it. They won't understand my pain. I could reach out to her and I could have that those conversations with her. And that was really a game changer for me because in my family, it's not that we couldn't talk about things. In fact, I feel that I became really close with my family that year, but Nobody wanted to upset each other. And uh, I mean, I shouldn't speak for anyone else. 
I felt that it didn't want to upset anyone by talking about it unnecessarily, even though it was necessary. So if I was having a hard time, I would reach out to her. And in those hard moments, I had someone saying comforting words on the other line or in response or however it was, probably text message for the most part. It just introduced to me the need for community in this where it can feel so isolating and it's so heart-wrenching and it's, you know, you can't get rid of the pain, but you can know that somebody else understands it, maybe not exactly, and maybe not the details of your personal situation, but the heaviness and what for me is one of the hardest parts, the permanency of it. And um, just that that kind of like reassuring voice, like, yeah, you're not the only person who's who's gone through it. And like, I've got you kind of. So, so that was really, really huge for me. And um, another thing that really helped me get through that year was finding for myself a mentor who I was able to learn Torah with. Torah was a huge part of my mom's life, as I've mentioned. And she said something really powerful to me or that at least resonated with me, which is that people become so fixated on the why. Why did this happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? And um, we're, you know, at least my understanding is that as a Jewish person, that's that's a really tough question to find an answer for. And I think most people, you know, it's hard to it's hard to find an answer for why. And what she said to me was that, you know, we believe in an afterlife. We believe that you, you know, go into the next world after this world. And she said that you go into the next world and you say to God, why? And in the next world, you have the ability to comprehend the answer to why. In this world, we don't have the ability to comprehend the answer to why. Whatever God says to me that's going to make sense to me about why my mom had to die and why she had to be sick for all those years, it's not going to resonate. It's not going to make me feel better. It's not going to, it's not going to be like, okay, like I get it now. So what do we ask in this world? If we don't ask why we ask what now, this is what happened. What do I do with it? And that was empowering for me. And one of the things that led me to do was to create a women's learning group that ran for almost three years in my apartment and, and people would come and it was something that I was able to oversee. And I wasn't the one who was leading it. I, I had to organize people who are willing to give up their time, which is really tremendous of them. When I think back on it, that people, whether they were students and it, this was helpful for them, they were able to get hours for coming to teach, whatever it was, it made a huge difference to me. Of course, you know, all my caring friends and all my caring family members and friends of my parents and really those people who you just know you feel loved. I had friends that they get me wonderful flowers on the anniversaries and cupcakes, you know, for, for my birthday, whatever it was. I had friends that drove with me to go watch my brother perform in his acapella concert at U of P and we spent Shabbos at a hotel, you know. They did it because they love me and they did it because they knew that that would help me feel supported during that year. Without all those pieces, it would have been just a million times harder. It's really great that you had that support system. Life kind of goes on for everybody around you when you lose somebody, when someone close to you dies, but it kind of stands still for you. And that feeling kind of sticks for most of that year, uh, if not longer, depending on, on, you know, what's going on in your life. But yeah, I just want to talk about one thing. You mentioned, you used the word heavy, that it felt so heavy and that so permanent. Knowing that your mom isn't here anymore is is really hard to digest at any age, especially more difficult when, you know, you're 23. Did you have 
any triggers during that year and even after, maybe even sometime today? After my mom passed away, for some time, a big trigger for me would be seeing other people with their moms. That was always hard for me. My mom, it was, I mean, I don't, I can't say that this was just our thing because I'm sure a lot of moms and daughters do this, but a big part of my week was sitting next to my mom at shul at at our synagogue. We we really spent time together there. You know, like we had our jokes about being in shul and like, you know, she would play with my hair, like give me chills if I asked her to, whatever it was. Going to shul after that was still a huge part of our lives and didn't really know where to sit. I didn't want to sit in our seat that we always sat in because that felt weird. And so many people were so, you know, warm and welcoming and saying, come sit with me, come sit with me. And I probably found a friend of mine most of the time and who I sat with. I was a little bit intimidated to to go in there and and, you know, find my place in the shul after all of that or sit alone. What else provided you comfort during that first year? You, you kind of touched on it probably throughout other things that you were talking about. Like you said, your your friends, your job that took you, you know, to Disneyland every day, essentially takes you because anything outside of that grief that you're experiencing is Disneyland. Yeah. I think that part of me really let myself embrace the grief. I let myself have those moments where I was just completely absorbed in my pain and in my tears. You know, we were talking about cell phones a moment ago, and there was a time that I went through my mom's cell phone, and it was just so, so painful to read even like her going, how are you? You know what I mean? Yeah, that generation. <laughs> I would watch a lot of home videos, I think, but I always loved home videos. I really believe in letting yourself feel. And so that's that's what I did. I remember that this, you know, this friend of mine who I connected with who had lost her father, she even said that it, it's almost like precious to have those moments where you feel so connected and you feel the grief so intensely because at, she was a few years out and it really had changed for her. I couldn't even imagine feeling any other way, but now here I am 10 and a half years later and it's been so long since I've really like lived that grief day in, day out. It feels at the time that you're, that this is your life now. There's a, cause it lasts for long enough and it's good to have things that are consistent and normal. So, and routine so that you almost can't feel all your feelings the entire day. So for anybody listening, like, like just fill you up, fill up your day. That way maybe it won't be as hard. I agree with that, Jeremy. Um, I've heard people in my own family and not saying that going back to work was the most helpful thing because, you know, you have Shiva, you have off and you really just have time otherwise to sit and think and let it consume you and it will consume you. And when you go back to work, you're forced to do other things and you're forced to think about other things. And that's like, you know, you're, you get to come up for air, so to speak. I remember also, I, my mom died on a Saturday night and Shiva was over on Sunday. We got up and I took the red eye back to New York and my mother-in-law picked me up from the airport and she drove me to young Israel of Woodmere, I think, and I davened there. And I went straight to work on Monday morning it was an intense experience to be to be in my office. You know, I obviously hadn't seen any of these people since my mom died. It took maybe like two hours before someone was just like, oh, so when are you going to get that done? And I'm like, I guess now. <laughs> and then I just started working. 
I will say that Tuesday morning waking up, I did not want to do anything. But if I hadn't gone to the office that first day that morning straight, I don't think I ever would have been able to go back. I think I would have asked for more time off and they probably would have fired me because I was an accountant and it was busy season. But I, I do think it was really helpful to go to go back to work. I did cut my hours a little bit, but, you know, n- nothing crazy. Just, you know, continuing, you said your, your friends were supportive. And we talked a, l- a little bit about this, about being aware of, you know, when you talk about your mom, like what others might experience. So I think in the beginning for me, it was super lonely because really nobody knew what I was going through. And, it, you know, thank God. I did feel lonely and I did feel self-conscious about my feelings and my actions. Did you, did you go through that also? The self-conscious piece and the lonely piece, but I'll talk about the self-conscious piece. You know, by nature, I'm, I try to be very sensitive to how other people are feeling. I'm a social worker. I don't know if I've mentioned that before. And so I, I also didn't want to burden other people with how I was feeling. I didn't want to make other people uncomfortable. And that's really hard to balance when your feelings are so all over the place. There were definitely times where, you know, I was protecting other people. I thought I was protecting other people by maybe not letting them in. But I, I do think that probably also pushing people away you know, in certain ways as well. And it's just something that I think people have to navigate. You have to reevaluate your relationships as these things happen and figure out what's going to bring you comfort in the moment. And I understand it. I understand the wanting to think about and consider other people, but I also think it's important to think about what's going to be helpful for you. You know, an example that comes to mind for me is that I don't really consider myself somebody who gets that angry like certain things every now and then I'll like have a big reaction but then I'm really fine but I was so angry that year so angry and who who am I supposed to be angry at god maybe and I'll touch upon that in a little bit but can't angry at my mom that she didn't stick around and you know somebody said something that was comforting to me somebody else who had lost a parent that said your mom wouldn't have left you if she didn't know you were going to be okay and and I believed that and so that just to bring that full circle. I, I, you know, I wasn't angry at her and angry at myself. Maybe I should have prayed harder, things like that. But the easiest people for me to be angry at were people who I thought I had a relationship with, whether we were friends, whether we were classmates, whatever it was, who just said nothing. They didn't, they, they didn't reach out. And then if they saw me, they wanted to act normal and that didn't work for me. And they were the perfect I don't know if a scapegoat is the right word, but the perfect people for me to be upset with because I was angry and they should, they didn't do something that they should have, in my opinion, from my point of view. And I'm not angry at any of these people now because I'm, I'm okay now, but at the time, you know, it seemed really selfish. You know, if you have a relationship with me, you know, me, you're just not going to acknowledge anything. And, and I, and I really mean this to anyone, you know, who's listening. It was so much better and not, maybe not everyone feels this way. I felt it was so much better to hear from someone, even the person who said the wrong thing. And there were plenty of people who said ridiculous things, but th- I knew their intentions were good. And I knew that they cared enough to make themselves uncomfortable to say, hey, I was you know, really sorry to hear about your mom. And that's really all I would have needed anyone to say is I'm thinking of you. I'm sorry about your loss. You know, hope you're okay. Any of those things were fine. It was the not saying anything that I really struggled with. I feel so similar or similarly. I, I remember in my head, I was like keeping like a list, like 
who didn't reach out. And it's, it's really, it costs nothing to be nice. And it's so easy to send a text because you definitely thought about sending it. You're friendly enough to think about it. Just send a text. Hey, I'm here. I'm really sorry. It's almost harder like to ignore it in a way because you, you know what you're ignoring. It's like, you know, they say that it's, it takes more muscles in your mouth, in your face to, to frown than it does to smile. It takes more to ignore than it does to just send that text. Like, you know, you're going to run into them. You know, you're going to see them. Like you go to the same shoal, you go to the same school, you, you live in the same apartment. You know, I mean, I don't know if that was, that was you. I, I mean, uh, hopefully none of your roommates did that, but, but like, you know, you're going to see that person. Like it's almost silly, like not to say something. I really wish, and, and you're right. Like, I don't blame them either because they're 23 years old. Like they don't know anything. And, and, and honestly, they're so lucky and, and, and I'm not jealous of them. Maybe I was jealous a little bit like back then, but I like, I watch people spend time with their parents and I get so happy. Like it's so, I'm like, oh, I hope that, I, I really hope that they're cherishing it the way I would knowing where I, like what I've been through. So do you try to reach out to people when they lose family? I hope I do a good job at, at reaching out to people when I when I know about a loss that they've been through. It's important to me if, you know, I'm able to, I like to pay a shiva call if I'm in the same place. You know, I've even had other family members who have, in my extended family, who have sat shiva since I moved here. And like my first instinct is always like, get on a plane. And then it's like, wait, I have three kids. And you know, it's not that simple. I think that's so important to highlight and to mention though, we need to normalize people getting on planes to be Menachemavo and to pay show call the same way you would get on a plane to have a, like to go to a family's bar mitzvah or something, because it's, it's so appreciated. I had few people fly for me and I saw a few of my sister's friends also that flew. We still think about it to this day still means something to us. And I think that I implore everybody that's listening, if you can at least think about it, you don't have to do anything else, but, but, but think about it. You make a quick trip for a wedding, you could do the same thing. And it means so much more than someone coming for your wedding. The difference is it's not fun for you. I also had a friend who, who flew in from Israel and yeah, you, you never forget those things. And we know, but with that said, I think everybody understands that we do have jobs and a lot of us do have families and there's a lot of reasons why that's difficult. So going back to what you were saying earlier, you can just pick up the phone, you know, or send a message or send an email. Yes, a hundred percent. A bar mitzvah or a wedding you can plan as soon as you get the invitation. So it's super difficult to take off. Um, maybe that's why it's more appreciated. I don't know. But you're right. There, there should be zero pressure to come. It's just know that it is appreciated. And even just calling and saying that you're there, 99% of the time, they're not going to, they might not text you back. They might not call you back and they might never call you. But I, I know that they opened that phone and made them feel good for however long. So we talked about being there for others when other people go through uh, an episode of grief. Do you ever find yourself the opposite, like distancing yourself from somebody who's going through something similar? I don't. It's a good question. I can't think of anyone that I've felt like I can't be around this. It's too similar. It's too hard. I will say that before I had children, I was probably a lot better about constantly following up with people. And so I'm really sorry to anyone that I haven't followed up with enough. I, I do also just want to note that everyone's different and some people don't 
want the constant checking in. And I just think it's important that people express what they need because otherwise, you know, no one's going to know. No one, no one would know that I needed support unless I said, Hey, this is what I need. And this is what support means to me and what it looks like. I remember thinking a lot that first year in general, but thinking more specifically about how much development my character was undergoing as a result of going through this loss. And I remember saying, well, I'd still rather have my mom here and have like an underdeveloped character than I I do think it's important always, no matter if someone's going through, you know, a tragedy, God forbid, or just something else that inspires growth to find the takeaways, you know, to find the lessons, find the opportunities in whatever your situation is. I think that it's always important to look for that silver lining, to try to make lemonade when, when given lemons, that's a huge part of how I've coped and, you know, how I deal with life now. I find myself really searching for the silver linings. And when I find one, I hold on to it. You know, I do find comfort sometimes talking to friends who are in similar situations. Do you have any relationships like that that you want to talk about? I would say that when in the first couple of years, I was very conscious to reach out and follow up with people who had been through something similar because it was mutually beneficial. On one hand, it gave me an opportunity to reflect and to share and to feel connection and also to offer support and to help them feel understood. And I got together with, I mean, at least half a dozen people at the time where we met up and we just shared our stories and it was, it was really comforting. And of course it was sad. And of course you didn't wish that, 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 that other person had to go through and you didn't wish you had to go through it, but there was something beautiful in the fact that something that we were able to find unity over it, despite the fact that it was horrible and tragic and, and something, you know, that we never wanted to experience. That first year at site, years later, you know, you're, you're 10 years out. What are those year at sites like for you now, as opposed to, you know, earlier on? That first year, the Yurtzeit sort of commemorated for me, obviously, the anniversary of my mother passing away, but also the end of Avelus, which was a really big transition. A funny story is that the first movie I went to see was with one of my best friend's sisters. We went to go see The Rock of Ages, and I came out of that movie, and I was like, that movie was incredible, because I hadn't been to a movie theater in a year, and everybody else was just like, that movie sucked. And for me, it was just like, oh my gosh, I got to see a movie. But I remember from, from my mother's 10th yard site, my, it, it was the pandemic, and my brothers and I got on a Zoom call, and we just reminisced a bit. But it, it's we've always kind of kept the yard sites a little bit more low-key. My, my husband sponsors a day of learning for my mom's yard site. I don't know if he's done it every year, but he's definitely done it a few times at, you know, one of his friends, yeshivas. And I've, I've toyed around with the idea of sponsoring a sheer or a kiddish. I haven't really followed through. So interesting you mentioned it. I, I made a big kiddish the first year after my mom died. None of my family came, I mean, because they were all not living. You know, I was in New York. No one else was there. And then I did it the next year and it was so great. It was so comforting for me. Everybody's different, but I just, I loved, I loved looking in my apartment and seeing so many people that I care about, that care about me, that came here 
and just hanging out. And, you know, it's nice that they're also all making brachos. Maybe it's for, you know, they ha- maybe they remember to have in mind that it was for my mom's neshama. It was very comforting for me. I felt very supported by it. Then we moved to LA and I was really nervous about doing one here because I didn't know everybody. I actually found it more comforting to do it in LA than in New York because everybody here knew her, knew her right? Yeah. They were all family, friends. I, it brings me like so much mm-hmm. happiness. And I remember when we started to do it here, all the adults were downstairs having such a nice time and all the kids were upstairs in the playroom. Yeah. And you're like, wow, this is like amazing. Like there's kids, they... My, 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 my daughter is going to like, you know, love my mom, you know, cause she gets to have candy yeah. and it's like, you know, she, she was only nine months old when she died. So she really doesn't know her. She doesn't really remember her. Yeah. You know, there's pictures that she sees and she knows it's grandma, but that's it. It ends there. There's no personal connection. Sure. I don't remember anything about my mom's mother and she died when I was 11 months old. So it's frustrating to know that I, that they won't have that relationship and that I don't get to see it. But it's so comforting that so many people are here and that all the kids are having a good time. And we're like, it's like a year inside Kiddush. Yeah. But it's like so nice and it's so great. And, you know, people are even asking me, people even ask, are you doing it again next year? Are you doing it again next year? Yeah. And it's just, that's comforting to me. That that makes me happy. It's one of the things that's helped. It helps turn, oh. yeah, it helps turn a really difficult experience into a meaningful one. Yeah. And going off of that, I might have misspoke when I said my brothers and I got on a Zoom. Maybe that was at the at the ninth yard site, not the tenth, but when it was my mother's tenth yard site, I posted something on Instagram asking people to complete Tehillim because Tehillim was actually a huge part of my mother's life. She ran a Tehillim group in her home, and it was every single week, and it was really for a refua for her, but for anyone in the community or people that are, people in our community knew she really never missed a week. And if she was going to be out of town, somebody else took it over and had it in their home that week. So she was very committed. And that was something that I copied her on when I got to NYU, I started to Hillam group. And when I moved to Riverdale, I tried to get a Hillam group going and it was a lot harder to keep up. And so I saw firsthand that it's not easy. And she did it till the end. And I think in Young Israel of Scarzo, which is the shul that I grew up in, that they still do it now that somebody else took it over when my mom passed away. And here we are 10 and a half years later, and they're still doing it. Is it memorialized for like for your mother? Is it like the Esther Trencher Trencher Tehillim group or um, women's Tehillim group? It's pretty informal. So I don't know that there's a title anywhere, but... But her friends are a part of it. Yes. Okay, that, so that's meaningful. Yeah. Because they, they're continuing, for them, they're continuing her legacy. Yes, absolutely. Wow, that's so special. It's so nice to have physical thing, even if it's not a really physical thing that's connected to you. Mm-hmm. I know that I find that helpful. It's like a flat line. So Caroline, we spoke a little bit about things down the line, like birthdays, anniversaries, Mother's Days, things like that. You know, how are those days for you now? What does it feel like? Do you sometimes even float by them and you remember later or or, or are they really big moments for you? Both. Everything. You know, sometimes I've had years where I've been like, oh my gosh, my mom's birthday was yesterday. And then I have years where people like all remembered and reached out. And then I've had years where... I felt the need to write on my mom's Facebook wall before my brother memorialized it and wrote happy birthday, like miss you, let me, whatever it was. There are times where I just keep it to myself or I mention it to my husband and um, Mother's Day is different because you can't forget it. Everyone knows it's Mother's Day. Now I feel really fortunate to celebrate Mother's Day as a mother. And that was a really special thing for me when, when I was able to celebrate my first Mother's Day. 
But what I will say is that in my experience, anticipation is always much harder and worse than the event itself. So Mother's Day wasn't that bad because I was so worked up in my mind about how bad it was going to be or how bad her birthday was going to be that first year that it came and it went. I think that that, that's something that we probably do in a lot of respects all the time where we think something's going to be horrible and then it just by comparison, it's really not. It could have the opposite effect too, of course. It could be that you think something's going to be so terrible and then it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy where it really is so terrible. For me, it just was that the event never was as challenging as you know what I expected it to be. You, know, you mentioned you read some books. Did you ever read anything by Dr. Edith Eager? Most of the books I read are Jewish, so I don't know if she's Jewish. <laughs> Yeah, Dr. Edith Eager is, is Jewish. She's a, she's a Holocaust survivor. <laughs> she's like a, a psychologist. <laughs> so to laugh about. Um, no, it's not. Just for all of our readers, we, we uh, obviously um, are not laughing at the Holocaust. No, my, three of my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. I promise I don't think the Holocaust is funny. I just think the fact that I didn't know she was Jewish is funny. Anyways, no, the reason why I asked is because she talks about like worrying how it's not a real emotion in a way. Like it has no substance. It's it's a byproduct of something else. And like 80%, something like 80% of the things that we worry about never actually happen. It was fascinating to me, but you're right. I think the anticipation can be more difficult, but everybody's situation is different. May is hard for me because it's Mother's Day. It's also my anniversary and also my mom's birthday the day before May anniversary. So it's it's hard. So I try to fill up my cup, so to speak, so that I, I don't have to wallow in something when I know it's like preparing yourself. Like I know that that day is going to be difficult. What can I do ahead of time so that I'm not not present or I'm not not like or that I'm in a good mood or I'm not in such a bad mood because it's not fair to my wife and my daughter to like not be there for mothers just because it's hard for me. It's It's, it's fair. It's understandable, but it's it's something that you can get better at. It's something that you you like you can hold space for 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 both. What what's happened in your life since your mom died? What what amazing things have happened to 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 you that that, that you'd like to share? So before I answer that question, something you said made me think about something that I used to think about all the time, which was that when I was in seminary. So this is before my mom passed away. We had a speaker and I couldn't tell you what the speaker was there for, when, any of the details, what they were talking about. But I do remember that they told a story about this boy who had been through so many hardships and tragedies and loss and that he became somebody really, really great, like despite all that. And I remember them specifically saying he had every excuse to just fall apart or to not be someone who does the right thing or is great. And nobody would have blamed him for it, but he chose that he wanted something better for himself. And, and that really resonated with me because I used to think about a lot how, yes, I've been through tragedy and yes, I can let myself fall apart and nobody would blame me for it. But wouldn't that be a double tragedy? Not only did I go through this tragedy, but now I'm not living a good life because of it, because I have an excuse not to. We know you ask about what amazing things have happened. And the truth is so many. My marriage and my relationship with my husband is 
a direct result of, of loss. And I'll touch upon that more in a future podcast episode with you. But we talk about that all the time. People ask me, do you think that you had been married to Noam if you didn't lose your mom? And the answer is no, I, I really don't. And, uh, you know, we have three incredible kids and we have, we're part of this really supportive, modern family. And um, it's, it's, it's really a blessing. I have a job that I love. It's my favorite job that I've ever been at. And I'm happy to go to work every single day. And that's no small deal. And I've been at a number of jobs and I've liked a number of my jobs, but not like this one. So just something that I, through struggles that honestly weren't even related to this loss since my mother's passed away, I've become a huge, not only advocate for, because I have a private practice and I always try to steer my clients in this direction, but I myself try to practice gratitude on a regular basis. And it's been life-changing for me. You know, when you ask about what things have like, you know, really come out of my life, everything. Like I, I really feel like I have a tremendously blessed life. And yes, I could give more examples, but I I think a lot of it just has to do with me feeling like I'm able to manage what life sends my way, even when it's hard and that I have the tools and the skills to deal with things and to also embrace the happy moments and to be present and to build connections and relationships, not only around this, but all sorts of friendships. And um, I do think that putting in that work is how you end up living happy life you know, regardless of what you go through. And of course you need to take care of the things that come up because we can't ignore them and just move on. We deal with them. But I think that, you know, they don't have to define us. They are part of our story and any sort of significant thing that should happen to anyone is a part of their story, but it doesn't have to necessarily shape them in terms of how they should feel for the rest of their life. I do think that comes from within. And I do think that that comes from a place of knowing what you want for yourself. I had this introduction written, hi, this is Caroline Casper. Her mother died. And I I was like, you know what? That's not how someone should be introduced. It's part of your story. It's part of how you're here today and what what you are today and who you are. It doesn't define you in whole. It it, it, it may be in part, but it's just it's it's just part of your story. And and that's it. And I think it's really important for people to understand that. that, I mean, it's really great. It seems like you have an amazing life. You you you're so careful to think about gratitude first. And I know that it's something that I'm working on because it's so easy to be aware of what is difficult for you, but so much harder to focus only on what's good. I don't expect someone whose loss is fresh to be able to make that shift towards gratitude. And, you know, I, I think that everybody needs to do things in their own time. And I think that everyone needs to do things in their own way. And that might not even be the best approach for other people. It's just I wanted to share what has worked for me. But that also took me years and a lot of work prior to realizing that that was a helpful tool for me. It's definitely tricky to navigate what to say and what to do for someone who is uh, deep in grief, just experienced a a death um, or a loss. Other than I'm here, what can I do for you? And everything else just comes when it comes. You know, we spoke a little bit about our relationship with religion. Sounds like your mom was really deeply connected to Judaism. There's a concept in after someone dies before the burial of Aninus, which is until they bury the body and you can't really do anything. You're not treated like a real person. You don't have any 
mitzvot that you can do as you know if you're a man you don't put on tefillin um you don't make a blessing before food you don't it's so strange especially if you're a deeply connected religious person it sounds like in a way that once you knew that this was the beginning of the end that that period was almost like that and so so how did your relationship with with god and with religion change it changed and it changed and it changed i never doubted that there was a God. I've always been a believer in God. And even, you know, at my mom's funeral, I don't remember who said it, but it was my first time hearing that part of my mom's health journey was, you know, when she found out that um, her cancer had metastasized, she wanted to get on this clinical trial and they were like, sorry, we're at capacity. Like we're only taking 200 people. She begged and she begged and she advocated and she advocated and they let her be number 201. Within two years, every single person on the trial had died and my, it kept my mom stable for five years. She was the one person who it kept her stable for five years. When that stopped working, that's when nothing else seemed to really work for her. And, you know, she would try and she would try this and she would try that and it didn't work. Even just being at the funeral, you know, you're surrounded by holiness and then you do Shiva and it's structured, you know, laws and it, it, it keeps, certain things keep you connected. But for me personally, you know, I definitely found myself in certain ways inching away or feeling justified. Certain boundaries, that, certain lines I wouldn't cross, but I definitely felt justified in, in other things. It took me a while to realize that distancing myself from God didn't make me feel better. It actually made me feel worse. Finding ways to feel more connected to God made me feel better. And once I realized that, it, it really was kind of, you know, I was, I was back on track. Can you just tell us what some of those things were that helped you get back on track or that you felt more connected to? Um, it's a good question. I don't know exactly what I remember. In terms of the emotional component, I felt lonely when I was not keeping mitzvot and being close to God. It, it was like another relationship that was being severed when I was able to say, wait a minute, this relationship actually provides comfort for me. That's when I realized that in order for me to have a relationship with God, it meant doing mitzvot. I think that's really amazing to come to. I think it's not easy to get there, but you know, you touched upon that concept a little earlier. If you don't, if you don't take advantage of the relationship, or, or if you let it suffer, you're in a way closing out another person or being or whatever in your life. You're, you're ruining another relationship when you don't have to. The whole process of alienating friends. Once you, and then you just realize, like, why am I doing that? Why am I just lost my mom? Why am I putting myself in a situation where I might lose a friend or something worse? Or, or you know, and I think it's really important for people to understand. Yes, and and, and I am. Absolutely guilty of that, you know, and I don't know how aware I was of it at the time. I think it had to do with just not feeling understood or feeling like either they were certain people were pitying me too much or they weren't pitying me enough or whatever it was. It it is. Well, going back to the beginning of what we were talking about, that it's just so easy to just reach out. You just want just engage with me. Don't pretend that it's not there, but don't not pretend either. Right. And you can do both. And on a different, a slightly different note, you know, if anyone listening has gone through loss themselves and, you know, does not know if they want to connect with other people who have gone through loss, in my experience, having that community available has been really invaluable. And I'll share a cute story, which is that my husband and I were at Coffee Bean in LA. My husband is not really into celebrities and we were walking out and he said, I think that's Molly Shaw. 
Shannon. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And I was like, should we go say hi? And he was a little bit starstruck, even though he doesn't like celebrities, go figure. And I went over to her and I'm sure she gets stopped all the time and people say things to her all the time. But I knew that what I wanted to say to her was that I had seen her in this documentary called The Club, which is about women who lost their mother at different ages, but relatively young ages. She was so interested in the fact that that documentary resonated with me, that she wouldn't let me end the conversation. She kept on giving me recommendations of different movies that are different films I should see and was just so appreciative that I came over to tell her and how most people don't stop her to talk about that documentary. You know, my husband was talking about how he saw her in SNL and she couldn't care less. And it was really meaningful to her that I, a complete stranger, a fan, if you will, had been through this experience that she had been through in in our own ways that she, that I was the one who had to ultimately end the conversation with her. So it just, again, it speaks to the fact that, you know, if you have gone through something and you don't feel like anyone's going to understand, they're not going to understand everything, but there's definitely something to be said about connecting with other people who have also been through loss. Wow, that's a that's a hilarious story. But it, it really just goes to show you that it breeds a sense of community because you just you want to find someone that's similar or that's gone through something similar and maybe they could support you, maybe you could support them. And you know, that's how we got connected here. I, I reached out, I wanted to ask you to, to do this and I was hoping you say yes and I'm lucky enough that you did. But how did it feel when I asked you to be on this podcast? I was excited, actually. One, I obviously think that it's super important to talk about these things and to normalize these things. You know, I, I had mentioned to you before before we started this podcast, Jeremy, that even the word died, I feel like is a bit taboo in certain respects. And people will rather say they passed away or they lost somebody, you know, maybe soften it. But let's actually like say what this is the same way that you would want to say it in a concrete way for a child to understand Like as a, an adult, you want to you want to say what it is like the you know where people are experiencing the death of someone they love and it is heavy but that's what it is I was also you know kind of eager to reflect when um, I first lost my mom I used to you know ride the subway a lot I was living in New York I would take out my phone sometimes and just cry and write notes on my notepad of what I would say to her if she was here and it was very therapeutic for me and this too has been very therapeutic for me and very thought-provoking and just thinking back on all these things and even just having kind of a newfound appreciation you know like about how how wonderful people really were I don't think I in the moment really internalized it because I was just too caught up in my grief. But here I am 10 and a half years later. And like a lot of people really did step up and they really did care. And and that's tremendous. And, um, and they deserve to be acknowledged for that. I, I really, this has been therapeutic for me too. I really hope that it wasn't traumatic for you and that it, you, you know, this was nice. But I, like, I, like I said to you, and, and you've, you've, you've shared, it's really important. Death is inevitable. Everybody is going to experience it. Maybe you shouldn't be thinking about it now before it's happened, but it's nice to know that for anybody that's going through grief now, there is a light at the end of the, that tunnel. There is the way the blanket comes off, but you, but, but you need to also take care of yourself. You need to also reach out when you do need help uh, and you need to communicate uh, what your needs are or else people are not going to know and it's not their job to know. And I just want to thank you so much for being here and hope that we could sit down again and talk about the, the, the more recent part of your life where you touched a little bit on your, on, on your husband. Is it okay if I share? a little bit you know i need to yeah, sure. i do need to keep the listeners excited of course um obviously joking um <laughs> caroline just celebrated her sixth year anniversary 
She's married to a wonderful man named Noam. Prior to marrying Caroline, Noam was married to someone that I grew up with and that I was friends with. Sadly, Daniela passed suddenly. Caroline reached out to Noam to offer comfort and support and used her own life experiences to help someone else. It's a truly amazing thing to have something so positive come out of something so tragic. A small message that I'm hoping to share with this podcast. And I just want to thank you so much again, Jeremy, for giving me this opportunity. Like I mentioned before, I've never had the opportunity to do anything like this. And really just to sit down and have this conversation, it it usually comes up in little bits here and there, you know, a memory or if it's relevant to something, but to sit down and really talk out all these different aspects of loss has been really, really meaningful for me and um, hopefully for the listeners as well. Thank you. I really appreciate you being here.